Hi, this is Eric Ludi for the Daily Thunder Podcast. If you are enjoying these messages and want to take these truths even deeper, I invite you to join us in Windsor, Colorado at Ellerslie for one of our upcoming five-week or week-long discipleship training programs. Ellerslie's discipleship training has been designed to ignite your spiritual fire and to give you the tools for a Christianity that really works. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So last week when I, when I popped into the series, we kind of were unpacking the life of Darlene Dibler and listening to some of her testimony, which was so amazingly powerful. And I'm really excited to get back into that, but I have a little uh, detour for this week. So I'm going to be going back into Darlene Dibler next week next Wednesday, but there was a message that God was just impressing on my heart as part of this series that I wanted to share with you, and the the title of this is called A Mission Field Right Here, and it's based on a story that I'll be sharing with you in this message, but it's really the concept of cultivating that yes, Lord mindset in every season of our life, not just getting this idea like once I go and I'm established somewhere, that's when I adopt a missionary mindset, but cultivating that, yes, Lord, I'm available. I have a missionary mindset right here, right now. So we've been hearing a lot about foreign missions in this series and specifically about the missionary movement to New Guinea, the interior of New Guinea from the 30s through the 60s. I think a lot of us, I know for me, it's when I hear these stories, so inspiring, and a lot of us, I think, have felt inspired. I want to go, I want to do something similar to that, that pioneer work among the unreached, but we're not really sure where to go or how to do that. That was a specific movement of time, a movement uh, that God was doing from the 30s to the 60s. There's not necessarily always those obvious mission fields, and we're sort of like, okay, I'm willing, but I don't know where to go. Some of us have maybe felt stirred by the stories, by the messages of going into the unreached, but we're not really sure if we're called to go. So I want to speak to both of those questions in this session because they are the questions that I've grappled with in my own life. A lot of times as Christians, we wonder what we are specifically called to, especially for those of us in that kind of developmental season of life, those college years, young adult years, what has God called me to? And a lot of us get distracted with that, and we feel like, okay, I've got to take all these personality tests. I've got to do all this evaluation and figure out how I'm wired, what my passions are, et cetera. And a lot of times when we get distracted with those things, we overlook the fact that God has already given every single one of us very clear direction on our calling. Now, not always specifics. Those have to come, specifics have to come in our own personal relationship with Christ. But our calling has already been made very clear. And it's a calling that's not just for a few special Christians. It's a calling for every child of God. Here's just a glimpse that helps us understand our calling, a glimpse in Scripture. John 15, 16, Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. We have been chosen and appointed and commissioned by Jesus himself to bear eternal fruit, not just temporary fruit, but eternal fruit for his kingdom. And he says in John 4, 5, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. There is an opportunity to bring in an amazing harvest and he's saying, hey, open your eyes to see it. Mark 16, 15, that's been a theme throughout this whole series. Go into the, all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. 
And John 14, 12, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Jesus built the kingdom. He calls us to build the kingdom. And of course, Ephesians 2, 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love that scripture. It has nothing to do with good works, earning the approval or the favor of God by doing all these good works, but the fact that he has already prepared God assignments for us to step into, and that's part of what we were created for, is a really beautiful concept in scripture that I think a lot of us overlook. So though the specifics are going to look different for every single one of us, as Christians, we all have that same sacred calling upon our lives. And so here's the key question in light of all of those commissions that are so clear in Scripture, how seriously are we taking the amazing calling that he has given us? It's a calling that goes far beyond just sitting in church once a week or attending Bible studies every now and then. A lot of times I think we feel like, well, I'm living out a good Christian life because I do all these Christian things. We are actually called to change the world for his glory, as every single one of those Scriptures just, that we just read demonstrate. It's, it's not just about saying, okay, I have to go out there and do something big and epic and exciting in order to build the kingdom of heaven. It's simply opening your eyes to the God assignments that he has waiting for you every single day. When we really come face to face with that clear commission in scripture that we are called to be his hands and his feet to this world, none of us can hide behind the excuse, I'm not called to that. I'm not called to be a missionary. I'm not called to promote the gospel. That, I have a different calling. It's, it's self-protective over here. We can't hide behind that excuse when we understand what God has commissioned us to do. So to clear up that question, am I called, am I not called, it's very clear in scripture, all of us are called in one way or another to be building the kingdom and to be proclaiming the gospel. Here are a few reminders of quotes that we we brought up earlier in this series, Hudson Taylor, it will not do to say that you have no special call to go to the mission field. With these facts before you and the command of the Lord Jesus to go and preach the gospel to every creature, you need rather to ascertain whether you have a special call to stay at home. Now, as we've been saying all throughout, the mission field may not be overseas, but we are all called to a specific type of mission field. We are all called to proclaim the gospel. Not called, this is from William Booth, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there, and then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. And that says it pretty straight right there. Can't really say, ah, you know, I'm just not called. When you hear something like that, you're kind of like, okay, I'm called. So here's the key question. Am I really called to missions? For those of us who might be struggling with that question. If you are a child of God, the answer is yes. The caveat to that, it doesn't necessarily mean you are called to go into a foreign country or a different culture as a missionary. It means developing a sacrificial, courageous, poured out missionary mindset no matter where God has placed you. It means being willing to go if God asks you to go, but it also means being willing to stay if God asks you to stay. And it's not staying in the sense of protecting your own comforts, but staying in order to pour out your life for those in your own culture, among your own people. And I've often grappled with this question, which is harder, to go 
or to stay. I want to take a quick look at what it actually means to stay in such a time as this, because things are different now than they were when Darlene and Russell Dibler went out. They are different now than when the Richardsons went out as missionaries. So we need to understand what's happened in our culture since then, which we've also been talking about throughout this series. But here's a, just a glimpse of it. When the early pioneer missionaries into New Guinea were sent out to reach a foreign culture with the gospel, they were le- leaving a God-fearing society a country with strong Christian roots and moorings. In essence, they were leaving a God-fearing culture and going into a godless culture. Now, that doesn't mean things were perfect here in America, but morality and God-fearing roots were still there. And that is not the case today. Now, we are the ones living in a godless culture. We are now living in a culture in need of courageous missionaries to shine truth and light in the midst of a very great darkness. So there has been a tremendous shift, and so here's where, we're our, here's where we are now. Without even leaving the shores of this land, we are standing in the middle of a mission field, and it's one of the most intense and needy mission fields in the world. And I think all of us need to sort of awaken to that because it's easy to think, well, there's not much to do here. I need to go elsewhere in order to proclaim the gospel. Very well, God could be calling you elsewhere, but it's not true that there is not a mission field here. In fact, it's a very intense mission field. And I think as we've seen the shift in our culture, even over the past few years, even over the past year, it feels even more intimidating. It's like, I don't even know what to do here. Let me go somewhere else because I don't really want to face all of this. Don Richardson, I always go back to that moment when he was talking with God. He was in the Sawi tribe, and he had really gotten an up-close look at how anti-God, anti-Christ they were. They valued treachery above all else. They loved darkness and they hated the light. And there would seem to be no way to reach them with truth. And he said, God, you've sent me to the most unreachable people in the history of the world. Even John the Baptist didn't have it this hard. And he kind of went through all the reasons why he couldn't reach the Sawi. I think when we look around at what's happening in our culture, we might have similar thoughts. We see these groups forming, taking over our society that are so anti-truth and anti-light. They love darkness. They hate light. They are utterly opposed to truth. We have absolutely no idea how we would ever reach them. If you, not even just the political things that are going on, but you look at something like the abortion industry or the fact that darkness is so sweeping our country that you now have people who celebrate darkness pretty openly. It says in the book of Proverbs that those who hate God's wisdom love death. And you see a love of death in our culture. You see a love of darkness. Eric and I were driving home from the mountains just a few days ago, and there was a car that pulled up behind us or next to us, and the license plate was, I think it was 666 Devil, that was the license plate. It was this whole car decked out in demonic garb, and this guy is just driving down the road like, hey guys, I'm, I worship Satan. And that's becoming more and more common. We're just kind of like, okay, let's pray for him. That's becoming more and more common in a culture that is completely given over to darkness. And you see that the entire mindset of our culture today is antagonistic toward truth. And it's, it's setting us up to have no voice at all for truth. So would you rather be called to the Sawi tribe in interior New Guinea, where, where they value treachery and they don't, they're not open to the gospel, or these lost within our own society? Corrie ten Boom, who traveled the world as an evangelist for most of her 
the second half of her life, observed in her book, Transparent for the Lord, that a lot of missionaries actually go to the mission field to escape some kind of pain or difficult situation in their life. They're just kind of wanting to get away from it. And they think, you know, maybe if I just go as a missionary, I won't have to deal with any of this, which usually is not true. The issues follow them to the mission field. I think today, some of us might be tempted to go somewhere else just to escape the stress and the chaos unfolding in our culture. So to go or to stay. For many of us, it is more appealing to go to a dangerous foreign land than stay and attempt to bring the gospel to our own culture. Why? Because, I know this is the way I've struggled with it, because we feel helpless. Most of us don't have the first clue how to bring God's light to the people around us who are so hostile towards him. Some of those old evangelistic tactics that worked in the 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s just aren't going to translate anymore today. So we don't know what to do. But God does. If he can provide a way of escape for the Sawi and the Yali and countless other unreached people around the world that are precious to him, can he not do the same for the deceived souls within our own wayward culture? And are we willing to become part of his rescue plan for reaching them? even if it means being misunderstood and rejected by family and friends, having our reputation publicly smeared, losing popularity and career opportunities because of our stand for him. If you lose your reputation among the Sawi tribe in interior New Guinea, they can physically harm you, they can kill you, that's true, you could die a martyr there, but they can't really publicly bash you online. They don't even know what a computer is. They can't really turn your friends and family against you because they have no contact with your friends and family. They can't ruin your reputation among your own people. I mean, they can within their own tribe, but not in your own country. They can't humiliate you for the rest of your life. But in our culture, when we take a stand among people who know us, among people who do have the power of the internet and have the power of knowing everybody that we know, all bets are off. And Eric alluded to this yesterday in his message, but as we have taken a stand for truth in our own country, our own culture over the past 25 years, we've gone through some very painful attacks as a result. And I've had moments where I really wanted to change my name or change our names. I wrote them down on a piece of paper what our new names were going to be. I was so convinced that we had to get away from the pain of the attack and being falsely accused and all these things that were happening. I was like, I cannot handle that anymore. We're changing our name. We're moving elsewhere overseas and we're starting over. I think Eric gave it away. New Zealand was sort of our placeholder country to escape to. So now if we actually do it, it'll have to be somewhere else because we already, cat's out of the bag. We were going to go to New Zealand, but... Hopefully that will not happen. Every single time I've wanted to change my name and flee to New Zealand, God has pulled me back and shown me, just as he showed Darlene Dibler, right? As that war was breaking out, you could get on this lifeboat, but I've called you here. God has done that to us, for us, time and time again. But I think that is why I can so personally relate to the struggles of these missionaries that we've been reading about. Even though I've never lived among a jungle tribe, the battles feel just as real to me. And here's something that I personally learned. To fight for the glory of God on our own soil requires a special kind of divine grace. Many of us would rather face a nine-foot spear in the jungle than the hostility in our own culture of those who hate what we stand for. Even standing for truth in Christian circles in our culture can be intimidating, can be something that we want to flee from. But just as God needs those who are willing to go where no one else is willing to go, he also needs those who are willing to stay and stand for him when no one else is willing to. 
So I just want to quickly share with you two times when God called Eric and I to stay. We were ready to go, and he said, your mission field is here. The first time was early in our marriage. Our vision was to go overseas as medical missionaries. Eric had completed pre-med requirements and was heading into medical school. I wanted to go into nursing. We thought we'd make a great team. We could go to the missionary, go as medical missionaries to a foreign land. We didn't know where yet, but that was kind of what we were preparing for. Right around that time, as Eric was entering back into medical school and I was researching nursing programs, we, our first book, which we wrote sort of by default because people were asking us, you know, come speak on your love story here and here and here. And we said, we'll just write our love story in a book and give it to people. So we wrote this, this thing down, wrote this story down, this little teeny booklet, and people started to get a hold of this book and said, will you come speak here? Will you come speak here? And it just started to explode from there. And we were given the opportunity to become full-time relationship speakers. So just think about the struggle that we went through because God was obviously opening all these doors for us to be relationship speakers, but we wanted to be medical missionaries. And being a relationship speaker sounded horrible. I didn't want to be known as the relationship speaker. I thought, you know, the people who speak on that stuff are weird. I don't want to be one of them. I mean, it's a great love story, but that's good enough. They can read the book. And God just kept pressing it on our heart. I'm opening these doors for a reason. I'm opening these doors for a reason. You need to walk through the the door I'm opening for you and say yes to this mission field. This is the last thing that I wanted. And I remember Eric asking me, what if God called us to do this full time? And my response was, no way. That was how willing I was. (laughs) So God really did have to work on my heart. I remember the first time we spoke to a group of 700 teens in Boulder, Colorado. It was our first speaking event. And these, these kids did not want to hear what we had to say on godly relationships. They were rebellious. They were glaring at us. Most of them had a member of the opposite sex that they were glued to as they were sitting in the seats looking at us. And we shared our heart. We shared what God had done in our relationship. And we challenged them not just to give their love life to God, but to give their entire lives to God. And I remember wanting to get out of there so badly when we were done speaking because I thought, I just want to... I don't. I want to pretend that never even happened. It's obvious that they're not receiving our message. Let's just exit out the back door. But then I was called upon to play the piano, play background music while Eric was giving this final closing challenge. And I looked up from the piano and my mouth dropped open because I saw hundreds of teenagers on their faces weeping all over this auditorium. They were, in, some of them encountering Jesus Christ for the first time. Some of them had grown up in church but never really understood the gospel. Some had never really understood what it, what it really means to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. They were saying, Lord, take my life. And they said to us afterwards, nobody has ever just challenged us to give our lives fully to Jesus Christ. We were wanting that message. I was like, well, you could have fooled me. I mean, you were, you were not, not acting like you wanted that message. So that was amazing because it was God's confirmation. I have given you a mission field. Don't over-glamorize this idea that it has to look this way because I'm, I'm setting a mission field right in front of you. And so Eric and I traveled for years and years living out that calling. The second time we felt called to go overseas was just a couple of years before we started Ellerslie, our discipleship training program. And to go to South America, I think it was Nicaragua that we had our, our sights set upon as full-time missionaries, we were, we were listening to messages by Jackie Pullinger, who went to the walled city and spent 40 years there among the destitute, and we were thinking, this is, this is what this is, God is stirring so deeply that we are to do this and to live a poured-out life in this way. And, and over the next few months, as we started to research where we could live and how it could look and 
where we would go, what we would do, God began to impress a scripture upon our hearts. And it was from Revelation 3.2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. And God began to speak and impress upon our heart that this was our unique call to the Western church, that there was that glimmer of Irish elk Christianity. If you've been to Ellerslie, you know what we mean by Irish elk Christianity, that all out for Jesus, I'm willing to live out the epic calling of Christianity and not just kind of go through the motions. There was still that glimmer of Irish elk Christianity within the Western church, and we were to strengthen it before it was snuffed out. This is what God spoke to us. And we knew that was what we were called to, to invest into a church that was weak, that needed spiritual strength, that was apathetic and needed that vision for something more. So once again, we reluctantly accepted the call to stay and accept the mission field that God had brought to us. And in the past 11 years, we've had the privilege of spiritually strengthening thousands from around the country and the world who have come to Ellerslie for that kind of strengthening and discipleship. And we've had the privilege of seeing that Irish elk Christianity all around us as God has drawn like-minded people to this place. And just that amazing privilege of being able to invest into a spiritually apathetic church and see those, those glimmers of revival has been an amazing amazing opportunity, amazing privilege. God has also asked us to bring the mission field into our own home by adopting children from other cultures and very difficult backgrounds. And so sometimes I feel like I'm waking up every day on the mission field, okay? I have a mission field right when I walk out of my bedroom door in the morning, and I better be tuned into the Spirit of God in order to take on this challenge because I can't do it in my own strength. Staying and accepting those mission fields has not been easy for us. And when we dream of escaping it, oftentimes we think, oh, it's easier to go to a tribe somewhere in the jungle than what God has called us to do. But I will say that God's grace has been present every step of the way. And we've known this whole time, and we know that we're doing the work that God has called us to do. So here's a key, a key truth that I want to share with you. We often over-spiritualize the idea of going overseas as missionaries, seeing gospel work on foreign soil as more valid than gospel work here at home. But here's the reality. Gospel work is vital and needed in both places. Whether we are called to go or to stay, obedience is what matters. So don't think that if God calls you to stay and invest into a mission field in your own culture, it's somehow a downgrade from someone who's called to interior New Guinea. Obedience is what matters. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You can do something that looks very impressive to other people, that looks very spiritual, but if it's not obedience, you're not in the center of God's will. I knew a young woman once who wanted to go to Haiti and work with orphans, but her motives for going to Haiti and working with orphans were a little bit skewed. She envisioned how spiritual she would look to other people. She thought, you know, I'm going to send, I'm going to write these blogs and pose with these cute orphans and post all these things on social media about this amazing missionary work that I'm doing. Well, within two weeks of getting to the mission field, she was she was a mess. She had a complete meltdown. She fell apart. She was on a plane to come back to the States because she just glamorized and over-spiritualized the idea of the mission field. She wasn't going for the glory of God. So it was not obedience. It was a selfish reason that brought her there. Some of you may be grappling with whether God has called you to bring the gospel to your own culture and maybe that's something God's impressed upon you, but maybe you're feeling that it's less spiritual or less exciting to invest into your own culture, or maybe it feels intimidating because of all that's happening around us. 
And so I want to walk you through three powerful stories from history of Christians who stepped into a mission field right in their own backyard and how God changed the world as a result. Their willingness, their sacrifice, their surrender is every bit as amazing as the missionaries who were called to go to interior New Guinea. And so what I'd like to challenge you with as we walk through these three stories is not put boundaries around what God can do with your life. Because answering the call saying, yes, Lord, cultivating that yes, Lord mindset might look different than what you expect right now, might come in a different package than your mentality that you've always had growing up of what a true missionary is. But we need to remember that obedience is better than sacrifice. And that's not to downplay those of us who are called to a foreign country, but it's also to understand that there is a mission field anywhere and everywhere that we are, and we're all called to those mission fields. So the first story is George Mueller. That famous Christian who is known for caring for orphans in Bristol, England, and running his orphanages entirely on faith. If you've never studied George Mueller's story, it's definitely worth reading his biography, his autobiography, or the many biographies that have been written about him. He's truly an amazing man of God. I want to highlight a moment where he chose Bristol, England, over Baghdad as his mission field, because he was presented with the opportunity to go to Baghdad, to go overseas, and he was very close to going. So this was before he started his orphanage. He was newly married. He had a thriving preaching ministry all throughout England, but he felt a growing burden to pour himself out on behalf of the lost and needy, very similar to what most of us are feeling as we walk through this series. His brother-in-law, whose name was Anthony Groves, had an amazing faith-based ministry in Baghdad, and part of George Mueller's philosophy about trusting God for his needs came from the influence of his brother-in-law. The life of a foreign missionary sounded so much more adventurous to George Mueller than being a pastor in England. Pastor in England, eh, it's not that exciting. Baghdad, wow, that would be amazing. One day, as he was pondering this, he received a letter from someone in Baghdad with 200 pounds for the specific purpose that he and his colleague, his ministry colleague and his family could go and be full-time missionaries there in Baghdad. The need there was great, and God seemed to be opening a door. He was really excited. He rushed home. He told his family, his, his ministry colleague, and they started to make preparations to go. And right as they were getting ready to go, this is something that happened to him as he was walking through the streets of Bristol. And this is adapted from one of his biographies. One afternoon, he was visiting a member of his congregation in the poorest part of Bristol. The streets were muddy and dreary and filled with huge rain puddles. Destitution was everywhere. A little girl came up to him about five years old with a toddler boy on her back who was wearing only a a torn pair of trousers. She asked for a shilling. He learned that her mother had died from cholera and her father had gone to the mines and never returned. As George gave her the shilling, his heart was strangely stirred. He had seen little children like this every day during his ministry in Bristol, but now it was as if he was seeing them for the first time. What would happen to these two little children without anyone to care for them? Was there any hope for their future? He thought about the fact that there were thousands of children in this same hopeless situation all around the streets of Bristol. This is right on the heels of a huge cholera epidemic, so there were orphans everywhere. As George walked through the muddy streets, he came to a decision. He didn't need to go to the mission field in Baghdad or anywhere else. He was standing in the middle of a mission field. Surely there could be no more needy people in the world than these helpless little children. Baghdad might sound foreign and exciting, but there was also work to be done in dirty, overcrowded Bristol, England. 
He did not know how to go about it or what a lone person with no regular income could do, but he knew one thing. With God's help, he would do something to help the poor homeless children of Bristol. His pledge was, God has a mission filled for me right here, and I will live and die in it. Now, that one decision to say, I accept the mission field, God, that you are opening my eyes to right here. I'm giving up this kind of exciting adventure overseas, and I'm accepting what's right in front of me. This is what happened as a result. Over his lifetime, he took the full responsibility and care for over 10,000 orphan children, all of whom were exposed to the gospel, were given a Christian education. A lot of those children would have died without George Mueller's direct assistance. He provided so many educational opportunities for underprivileged children that he was even accused by some of raising the poor above their natural station in British life. In, he established 117 schools which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 children. He ran his orphan homes entirely by faith, and he ran them with excellence. When Charles Dickens, who was the, the famous writer, was alive at this time, and he had heard all these rumors, all these false accusations against George Mueller that he exploited these children, they were treated you know, horribly in rat-infested buildings and all this stuff. So he came unannounced to see for himself if George Mueller's orphan homes were a place of abuse or a place of hope for these children. And without even checking anything, George Mueller told his staff, take Charles Dickens wherever he wants to go in any of these orphan homes and show him whatever he wants to open any door he wants to see. So he spent like two hours, Charles Dickens, touring these orphan homes, and he was so blown away with the care, with the excellence these children were being treated, that he publicly defended George Mueller after that and defended his reputation and said, I've never seen anything like this. Amazing fruit. So here's a glimpse of George Mueller's funeral service. So you, you take that moment in Bristol where he says, Lord, I'm going to pour my life out for these dirty, ragged children all over the streets of Bristol, all the way to the time that he died. This is a, just a little excerpt from his funeral. About 1,500 orphans, those able to walk the distance, marched in rank behind the coach carrying George Mueller's coffin. The children were joined by hundreds of men and women who had grown up in the orphanage, including some who had been in the original orphanage on Wilson Street when it opened in 1836. 7,000 people stood respectfully at the cemetery as George Mueller was buried. The funeral service was reported all over England, and news of it went out on the telegraph wires all around the world. The Daily Telegraph wrote that George Mueller had robbed the cruel streets of thousands of victims, the jails of thousands of felons, and the poorhouses of thousands of of helpless waifs. And how had he done this? The Liverpool Mercury wrote, how was this wonder accomplished? Mr. Mueller has told the world that it was the result of prayer. The rationalism of the day will sneer at this declaration, but the facts remain. This is what a secular newspaper said of him. All of that flowed out of that one moment when he said to God, you have a mission field for me right here and I will live and die in it. He couldn't see, okay, God, you've called me to 10,000 orphans and 120,000 I'm going to educate. He just said, yes, Lord, and God led him the rest of the way. Frank Jenner, those of you who are here at Ellerslie have heard me speak of him. I'm not going to go very deep into his story because I've already done a lot of teaching on him during your time. But for those listening and watching the video... 
the Mission Street on George Street, the Mission Field on George Street. So this happened, this was a young man in Australia during, right before the Second World War. And he, was, he, was, he had been in the army and then God radically saved him, given his life, he'd given his life radically to Jesus. And he started to see all of these military personnel walk by him on George Street in Sydney, Australia. And he knew, because Australia was kind of like a hub where service people would, would disembark for a few days and kind of have a few days off and then they'd go back to the war. And so he was seeing hundreds of men and women just here for a few days, ready to go back to the battlefronts of World War II, and he knew a lot of them would never be coming back alive. And so he had this overwhelming burden, Lord, I've got to share the gospel with these people who will never maybe hear it, and they maybe only have a few months or years to live. And so he made a decision, a pledge before God, that he would start to evangelize and share the gospel with 10 people every day. So here's just a summary of, of his ministry. On a busy street corner in Sydney, Australia, a young man named Frank Jenner watched hundreds of military men and women hustle past him. He knew most of them would soon be headed into dangerous battlefronts, and he felt an urgency to reach them with the life-changing message of the gospel before it was too late. In that moment, Frank made a commitment to God that he would witness to 10 people each day for the rest of his life, as long as he was physically able to do so. And for the next 28 years, that is exactly what he did. In wartime and in peace, in bad weather and in good, Frank left his workplace every afternoon and headed down the street on George Street with a stack of gospel tracts in his pocket. He came up to people and he always asked them the same question, if you died within 24 hours, would you be in heaven or hell? Even though he witnessed every single day street evangelism, he never found it easy. Can you imagine after 28 years of doing this 10 times every day, he still didn't find it easy and he had a little verse in his pocket I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he would pull it out and read it almost every single day before he started to witness. Um, a man named Frank, uh, Francis Dixon, who was a traveling pastor and evangelist, started to hear these stories all around the world, everywhere he went, of men and women who had given their life to Christ because they encountered this little guy on George Street in Sydney, Australia, who asked them this question of where they would go when they died. And it said, the question burdened me. I just had to go back and find a pastor or a Christian and find out more about truth and they led me to Christ. And so many of those people were now pastors and missionaries and spiritual influencers. And Francis Dixon heard about Frank Jenner's witnessing in so many different countries from so many random people who didn't know each other that he said, I've got to go meet this guy. So towards the end of his life, Francis Dixon went to see Frank Jenner toward the end of Frank Jenner's life and told him, you know, I've been hearing testimonies all over the world in like five different countries or 10 different countries of, of the influence that you've had. And Frank just started to weep because he didn't even know that there was any fruit of his ministry until towards the end of his life. But he was just faithful every single day to that mission field on George Street in Sydney, Australia. Over the course of Frank's lifetime, it is estimated that he personally witnessed to over 100,000 people. Over 100,000 people he personally shared the gospel with. Thousands responded to the gospel as a result. Many of the people that he won for Christ went on to become pastors and missionaries who continued to share the gospel of Jesus Christ all around the world. This man, all he did was walk out his front door and look at the mission field and say, yes, Lord, I'm willing. And he reached more people than most pastors or most foreign missionaries would reach in their lifetime. 
The third story is David Wilkerson. Some of you are probably familiar with his story, his famous book, The Cross and the Switchblade. I love the moment when he accepted the mission field that God showed him in his own country. He went from being a comfortable country preacher to a transformer of inner city gangs. And he's one of the most unlikely people to invest into that particular mission field. Here's, uh, this is a, an excerpt from The Cross and the Switchblade that just kind of gives context to how he made that decision. This whole strange adventure got its start late one night when I was sitting in my study and reading Life magazine and turned a page. At first glance, it seemed that there was nothing on the page to interest me. It carried a pen drawing of a trial taking place in New York City, 350 miles away. I'd never been to New York, and I never wanted to go, except perhaps to see the Statue of Liberty. I started to flip the page over, but as I did, my attention was caught by the eyes of one of the figures in the drawing, a boy, one of seven boys on trial for murder. The artist had caught such a look of bewilderment and hatred and despair in his features that I opened the magazine wide again to get a closer look, and as I did, I began to cry, what's the matter with me? I said aloud, impatiently brushing a tear away. I looked at the picture more carefully. The boys were all teenagers. They were members of a gang called the Dragons. Beneath their picture was the story of how they had gone into Highbridge Park in New York and brutally attacked and killed a 15-year-old polio victim. The story revolted me. It turned my stomach. In our little mountain town, such things seemed mercifully unbelievable. That's why I was dumbfounded by a thought that suddenly sprang into my head, full-blown, as though it had come to me from somewhere else. Go to New York City and help those boys. I laughed out loud. Me? Go to New York? A country preacher barge into a situation he knows less than nothing about? Go to New York City and help those boys. The thought was still there, vivid as ever, apparently completely independent of my own feelings and ideas. I'd be a fool. I know nothing about kids like that, and I don't want to know anything. It was no use. The idea would not go away. I was to go to New York, and furthermore, I was to go at once while the trial was still in progress. In order to, stand, to understand what a complete departure such an idea was for me, it is necessary to first know that until I turned that page, mine had been a very predictable life. Predictable but satisfying. The little mountain church which I served in, in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania had grown slowly but steadily. We had a new church building, a new parsonage, a swelling missionary budget. We were happy in Phillipsburg. The life of a country preacher suited me perfectly. And then, I'm going to make a long story short, God challenged him of how he was spending his free time every night. He's spending a couple hours watching TV every night. And so God said, would you spend that time instead in prayer and seeking me for direction in your life? And he thought, well, my life is fine. I have a good church ministry. Things are comfortable. Things are predictable. I'm good here. God said, would you sell that TV, get rid of it, so you're not distracted with watching the news every night, and would you pray instead? So he did this fleece thing where he said, I'm going to put the TV up for sale in the newspaper in like the want ads, and if somebody calls me within like 15 minutes of the, of the newspaper being you know, on people's doorsteps, then I'll know it's God. And the, his wife is like, I don't think you really want God to speak to you if you're only giving 15 minutes for this to happen. But as soon as the morning paper was out, he got a call like within a few minutes. A guy said, I'm coming over to buy your TV. And David Wilkerson's like, don't you want to see it first? Don't you want to look at it? He's like, nope, I'm going to come buy it. So he just came, handed him the cash, took the TV. And David Wilkerson's like, okay, I guess I'm praying every night. <laughs> So he started to do that every single night, use those same two hours that he used to spend in front of the television in prayer, and this is what he wrote. 
My life has not been the same since. Every night at midnight, instead of flipping some dials, I stepped into my office, closed the door, and began to pray. It was during one of those late evenings of prayer that I picked up Life magazine. I sat down in my brown leather swivel chair with a pounding heart as if I were on the verge of something bigger than I could understand. I opened the magazine. A moment later, I was looking at a pen drawing of seven boys, and tears were streaming down my face. And that moment began one of the most powerful and unlikely mission fields and mission works in modern times. David Wilkerson's ministry to those gangs in inner city New York. A simple country preacher who knew nothing about gang activity, nothing about how to reach teenagers, transformed the lives of thousands of violent, troubled gang members in one of the worst cities in the country. And the way that God put him in the position to influence those boys is absolutely incredible and hilarious. So if you want to know the rest of the story, you should read Crossing the, the Switchblade. So we've talked about three stories. George Mueller says, you've got a mission filled for me right here. Frank Jenner says, right here on George Street, I have a mission filled. And David Wilkerson says, two, three hours away, there are these troubled teens in New York City. I'm going. Here's a key question. In our godless society, we are standing among some amazing mission fields. But the question is, do we have eyes to see them? If you want to pray a life-changing prayer, pray this. Lord, give me eyes to see what you see. Yesterday, Eric talked about having eyes open to see God's reality rather than the culture's reality. And this is sort of an offshoot of that prayer. Lord, give me eyes to see what you see. Give me the burdens that are on your heart. I remember, I think I shared this last week, possibly in a different message, but in the book of Revelation, when Jesus is talking to the lukewarm church, the Laodicean church, he doesn't just say, hey, you are lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, and that's that. He says, I'm giving you a remedy. And he gives like three things that he advises them and counsels them to do. And one of those three things is to anoint their eyes with eye salve that they may see. Lord, give me eyes to see what you see. Because they were very self-focused. They didn't think they needed anything. They thought they were doing fine. There was need all around them. They weren't seeing it. <clears throat> George Mueller was around street children for many, many years of his ministry, but that day when the little girl asked him for the shilling, it was like he saw those children for the first time. In that culture, even Christians were kind of trained to tune out those street children because there were too many of them, especially after the cholera epidemic. Nobody could possibly help them, so it's like we just need to kind of pretend they're not there. But that was the day that George Mueller said, Lord, I want to see what you see, and he saw for the first time. He really saw the children. He really saw each individual child as a precious life that God cared about rather than, oh, that big group called the street children. David Wilkerson, when he picked up that magazine, you know, so many people could just flip through a story like that and say, oh, that's sad or that's really terrible. But he saw those gang members the way God saw them. When he saw that boy who had committed murder with such a, a look of bewilderment and hatred and despair on his face, he felt the burden of God and tears started to stream down his face. And that is only possible when God anoints our eyes to see what God sees. Frank Jenner, he opened his eyes. I mean, most of us, when we're not praying that prayer, we don't have that yes, Lord mindset. We're just seeing a whole bunch of people on a crowded street. But Frank Jenner says, I see men and women who are about to go off to a war and may never come back and may never hear the gospel. He saw what God wanted him to see. He saw what God was seeing. Here's just a glimpse of a few of the backyard mission fields that we are standing in the midst of, just like George Mueller was standing in the midst of a mission field in Bristol, England. 
And I'm just going to give you a snapshot of some things. The unborn is a mission field. The, the abortion battle, approximately 53,310,843 babies have been aborted in this country since Roe versus Wade. Nearly one in four U.S. women will have at least one abortion in their lifetime. Often they are pressured or coerced into making that decision. Staggering mission field. Most of us are like, I have no idea what to do, but it's there. Do we tune it out? Do we ignore it? Or do we say, Lord, give me eyes to see what you see? The unreached all around us. The reality is that it is estimated 150,000 people die every day without knowing Jesus Christ. And we see the lost all around us in the culture, but we think, ah, I don't really, I'm helpless because of the media, because of social pressure, because of the mindset shifts of our culture. They're not what they were in the 50s or even in the 80s. I don't know what to do. But are we willing to not tune them out and say, Lord, give me eyes to see them as you see them. I, I shared this story in one of my messages to the Ellerslie students, but when William Booth, who was a co-founder of the Salvation Army, when he signed the guest book for King Edward VII, he summed up his life's work in this way. Your majesty, he wrote, some men's ambition is art, some men's ambition is fame, some men's ambition is gold. My ambition is the souls of men. And you could not adopt a greater ambition for your life than to make your life's ambition the souls of men. And his wife, Catherine Booth, wrote this about the unreached. If your neighbors were sick of some devastating plague and you could go and help, would you not do it? Would you say, I'm a woman, I cannot go, or I'm too young, too old, too busy, I can't go. I pray you have me excused. Or we would say, let me go like Miss Nightingale did to the sick and wounded soldiers. Let me go. And these are not the bodies, but the souls. They are dying. They are going to an eternal death. Will you not rise up? There are unreached all around us, increasingly more so as our culture becomes more godless and more anti-truth. What are we willing to do to reach them for eternity? The foster care system. There are nearly 700,000 children in the U.S. foster care system. Nearly 80% of inmates serving time in U.S. prisons have come out of the foster care system. Data shows that 44% of children placed in foster care are arrested at least once, as compared with only 14% of children who stayed with their biological families. Huge mission field. 700,000 children each year in that system. 80% of those in prison have come out of that system. There's a need. Do we tune it out or do we say, Lord, I'm available for that mission field? One of the biggest overlooked mission fields in our culture today. Trafficking victims, which is happening in our own country. There are 27 million human slaves in the world today. A large majority of young girls and women in forced prostitution. There is more slavery today than in the days of William Wilberforce, which is amazing. Now, he's the, the one who's famous for fighting for the rights of slaves to see the, the slave trade renounced and revoked in his day. And a lot of times we think, oh, if I could just live in that time, I would fight for their freedom as well. There are more human slaves today than in that time. And according to the Department of Homeland Security, every year millions of men, women, and children are trafficked worldwide, including right here in the United States. It can happen in any community, and victims can be any age, race, gender, or nationality. Then there's the antagonistic groups in our culture today. We have the LGBTQ, we have the socialist liberals who have a very different agenda than what our country was founded on. We have all sorts of political, politically charged groups that are antagonistic towards the gospel of Jesus Christ, towards Christians, towards light, towards anything truth-based, and they sort of label people who believe 
what God tells us to believe as the problem with our society. How in the world do you reach those groups? They are so hostile towards the gospel. They are so positioned to reject anything that we stand for. They're probably the most intimidating mission field, I think, that we see in our culture today, seemingly impossible to reach. But when I think back to those moments of missionaries who were in impossible situations on the mission field, I think if God provided a way for them to communicate truth in that situation, he can provide a way in our situation. William Booth had a philosophy. Whenever the Salvation Army would go into a new territory and want to establish gospel work there, he told his workers, in his fellow workers in the Salvation Army, this was his strategy. Go after souls and go after the worst. So he said, go into a community and find the ones that are notorious, that everybody says they will never accept Christ. That person can never be reached. They are the worst alcoholic. They are so entrenched in their sin, their prostitution, their crime, whatever it is. They're, everybody knows how terrible and evil their life is. There's no way that you could ever reach them or cause them to change. William Booth says, go after those people. And the gospel would change their lives so many times. And then the whole community would be like, wow, what, what was it that changed this person's life? I didn't think anything could ever reach them. And they said, I want to know more. And that's usually how revival began to break out through the influence of the Salvation Army in each city that they went to. Go after souls and go after the worst. And we look at the, those antagonistic groups in our culture today. Are we willing to say, I'm going after them? in the power and the strength of God. Are we willing to make ourselves available for these mission fields? Overseas, if God calls, yes, but also for these mission fields. Today, it requires just as much willingness, sacrifice, and courage to enter these mission fields that I've just mentioned than it does to go to the interior of New Guinea in the 30s. If we will not reach them with the light and hope of the gospel, who will? So I want to just finish with this Reminder from the book Peace Child, and a little spin on it for this message. When Don Richardson first arrived in New Guinea in the 60s, 50s, 60s, somewhere in that range of time, there had already been some missionary work happening there for the past couple of decades, but the place he was going to was completely untamed, unreached. Nobody had ever really been in there. It was very dangerous. And this is what he grappled with as he prepared to figure out where he's going to build his house and should he bring his wife and baby son to this mission field. This is what his book says. The wilderness of the locale seemed to taunt me. Something in the mood of the place seemed to say mockingly, I am not like your tame, manageable Canadian homeland. I am tangled. I am too dense to walk through. I am hot and steamy and drenched with rain. I am hip-deep mud and six-inch sago thorns. I am death adders and leeches, and crocodiles. I am malaria, and dysentery, and hepatitis. Your idealism means nothing here. Your Christian gospel has never scrupled the conscience of my children. You think you love them, but wait until you know them, if you ever can know them. You presume you are ready to grapple with me, to understand my mysteries, and change my nature, but I am easily able to overpower you with my gloom, my remoteness, my heedless brutality, my indolence, my unashamed morbidity, my total otherness. Think again before you commit yourself to certain disillusionment. Can't you see I am no place for your wife? I am no place for your son. I am no place for you. He grappled with this threat, this taunt for a while, and then finally he had a response. It's only a bluff, I thought. This swamp is also part of my father's creation. His providence can sustain us here as well as anywhere else. 
Then the peace of God descended upon me, and suddenly this strange place became home, my home. I turned to Cain and John and said, this is where I want to build. Right there in that center of the greatest threats, the greatest hostility, he says, it's my home, this is where I want to build. So I want to put a new spin on that same kind of scene with our culture's challenge to us today. It's not the jungle that's taunting us, it's our own culture, and this is what it's saying. I am not like your tame, manageable America of the 1950s. I am chaos. I am sin-saturated and proud of it. I am immorality and darkness. I am suffocating social pressure to conform to my twisted ideology. I am biased media, relentless enticement towards sin, anxiety-inducing fear tactics, and hopelessly confused identity. Your idealism means nothing here. Your Christian gospel has never scrupled the conscience of my children. You think you want to reach them, but wait until you know them if you ever can know them. You presume you are ready to grapple with me, understand my mysteries, change my nature, but I am easily able to overpower you with my control, my intimidation, my heedless disregard of truth, my indolence, my unashamed debauchery, my total otherness. Think again before you commit yourself to certain disillusionment. Can't you see I am no place for you? And this is what our response needs to be to that message that we are hearing so loudly from our culture today. It's only a bluff. Just like Don Richardson, he said, it's only a bluff. This country and these people are also part of my father's creation. His providence can sustain me here as well as anywhere else. If you and I are willing to call this bluff, the peace of God can descend upon us and cause this unfamiliar and chaotic culture to become our mission field. And for many of us, this is where we are called to build his kingdom. Now, again, this is not to discount the value of going to foreign soil with the gospel. That's extremely important, and many of us are called to that. But I also want to challenge you to adopt a missionary mindset right where you are today, even in this culture, and be willing for God to show you, open your eyes to a mission field you might be standing in right now and not even seeing. If you don't know where to begin, here are a few last words of encouragement. I have found in my own life that it often starts with one step of obedience. When, when we are hit with the reality of a huge staggering need, like the abortion industry issue, how can you, how can you even begin to make a dent in something like that? Or even things like foster care or trafficking or the unreached. You see these huge numbers and you think, how, what do I even do? I, I feel paralyzed. When Eric and I were first feeling burden to stand on behalf of orphans, God's message to us was very clear. We had heard that there were 143 million orphans in the world, and we were feeling completely paralyzed because God had put orphan care on our hearts, but we didn't know what to do. When the number is that big, you just feel so small. What can you do? And God said very clearly, start with one. It was one step of obedience that we needed to start with. And if you're here at Ellerslie, I'll be sharing more of that story with you later in this time. But often it's one step of obedience. It's not saying, like George Mueller didn't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to personally take responsibility for 10,000 orphans between now and when I die. He said, no, I'm just making myself available to this one little girl who's asking for a shilling. And with David Wilkerson, he just wanted to go help those seven boys that were on that trial. It's sometimes it's just that one burden that God puts on your heart, and you say, yes, Lord, to that one step, and then he tells you what the next step is. 
usually the people that we look to in Christian history did not start out with this epic mindset of what they were going to do. I'm going to reach 100,000 people personally with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not what Frank Jenner was saying. He just said, Lord, I just want to make myself available to this mission field right here on George Street. I'm just going to try to share the gospel with 10 people every day, every day that I possibly can. That was his one step of obedience, and God multiplied it and caused it to produce fruit. God can turn one simple yes, Lord, into fruit that will last for eternity. Remember that. You don't have to have it all figured out, but that cultivating that yes, Lord mindset and saying, Lord, I'm willing to start with one step of obedience. Elizabeth Fry, a Quaker woman in England way back when prisons were so horribly run and everyone who was in prison was treated like animal, like animals and just tons of cruelty to those prisoners. She just woke up one day as a Quaker woman who was kind of protected and sheltered from that. And she just said, Lord, show me how I can bring glory to your name today. And he put on her heart to go visit Newgate Prison. It was just a few miles down the road. And she saw the destitution of these women prisoners. She started to help them and encourage them. And it was just that one step of willingness that caused her to become the greatest prison reformer in history, just from saying, Lord, what can I do for you right now today? It just was one step of obedience. I heard the story of a 70-year-old woman who went to her pastor and said, I want to do something for God. I don't know what to do. I'm in my later years. I, she gave her life to Christ as an older woman, so she felt like, oh, I wasted so many years of my life. Can I maybe teach Sunday school? And he said, no, I think you're too old for these rambunctious kids, but let's pray together what God's mission field is for you, right where you're at. And so they prayed, and then later that day, she went home. She was trimming the bushes outside of her house and a Chinese foreign exchange student walked by, and they struck up a conversation. She invited him into her house. He had never been invited into the home of, of an American before. He had been in the country for about a year. And he was from a culture that was trained to respect elderly people. So he loved to just chat with her and hear everything that she had to say. And she shared her testimony with him and really spoke to his heart. And he said, can I come back tomorrow and bring some of my friends? So the next day he came and he brought other Chinese foreign exchange students to this 70-year-old woman's house, and they started to talk. And pretty soon, she had a Bible study in her home for Chinese foreign exchange students. There were about 100 of them that came to her home. This 70-year-old woman who had never been to China, didn't speak the language, didn't know anything about the culture, but just said, Lord, show me where my mission field is. And she'd made herself available, and that chance encounter, which wasn't really a chance encounter, with that one Chinese exchange student led to this incredible ministry. In a time in her life when she probably would have felt, I'm kind of past those years, when I can bear fruit for the glory of God. Bearing fruit for the kingdom of God, building his kingdom, preaching the gospel, discipling all nations, it's not an obligation or something we have to say, oh, okay, this is just one more thing I have to check off my list as a Christian. It's a sacred calling. It's a privilege. It's something that he has chosen us to do. And that's the scripture that I want to finish with, John 15, 16. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. We have been chosen and appointed by God. So whether that's a mission field that you're standing in right now or it's a mission field on the other side of the world, it's that yes, Lord, mindset that will cause us to bear fruit that will last for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we just freshly consecrate our lives to you. I pray specifically that we would have eyes to see what you see. Some of us are called to other cultures. But those of us who aren't sure or who are called here, Lord, may we have eyes to see these mission fields that are literally right outside our back door. And for those of us who may feel called in the future to foreign cultures, may we not overlook the mission fields 
that we can invest into right here and right now. May we wake up every day with that mindset of, yes, Lord, I'm available to you. Lord, show us what those one steps of obedience are that we are to take today. Lord, thank you for choosing us and appointing us for this calling to go and bear fruit that will last for eternity. And I pray that you would individually guide and direct our steps as we say yes, Lord, to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.